To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. The way I look at life is that it's the most important phenomenon we, that exists in the universe. Without life, the universe is by definition meaningless. It's clearly that meaning enters the universe with consciousness mm-hmm. and consciousness is a property of living things and so without living things there's no meaning so so i think that let's flip it around if this is the only planet in the milky way galaxy that currently hosts an intelligent civilization then it's the only island of meaning in a sea of 400 billion stars and therefore we have a tremendous responsibility notwithstanding our physical yeah. insignificance to um to protect this island of meaning Dr. Brian Cox is one of the most popular science communicators in the world, full stop. If you've never heard of Brian Cox, you might need to get your nerd card revoked. He's been hailed as the natural successor to David Attenborough as the foremost science communicator in England, and his BBC specials are some of the most popular science programs they've ever aired in the last decade. Uh, Some of those programs include Wonders of the Solar System, Wonders of the Universe, and Wonders of Life, as well as some of the books that he's written like The Quantum Universe and Why Does E Equal MC Squared. All of this is outside his day job as a professor of particle physics at the University of Manchester, and he's been the recipient of multiple prestigious awards, including the Michael Faraday Prize, he's been elected a Fellow of the Royal Society, and he's been named a Commander of the Order of the British Empire, which, in my head, I imagine is presented in a ceremony with a sword of some kind. And yet, despite all that, he was generous enough to spend some time with me talking about everything from the origin of life to life on other planets, cosmology, and his upcoming live tour called Horizons, a 21st Century Space Odyssey, which will employ some groundbreaking visual effects uh, techniques that were actually pioneered on shows like The Mandalorian, which is really cool. The tour kicks off in the U.S. and Canada at the end of April, and will hit the U.K. and Ireland at the end of August. I'll put a link to some of the dates in the show notes below. But he's hitting up 50 cities on this tour. That's just like, that's insane. This guy's a total rock star. Um, and he, he used to actually be a rock star. We, we talked about that just a little bit. You don't get much cooler than Dr. Brian Cox. So all that said, it was, it was kind of surreal to, to get a chance to talk to him. Um, I really don't share on, on Facebook with my friends very often what I've got going on with my YouTube stuff anymore. But this was definitely one of those where, yeah, I, I took a screenshot of our Zoom call and, and shared it. I, I couldn't help myself. And I don't think my friends like me anymore. But anyway, fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I want to thank Brian and his team for setting this up. I'm super honored to get to do this. But enough of that. Let's jump into my conversation with Dr. Brian Cox. Has, have you started the tour yet? Uh, no, we've done some um, sort of a lot of warm-up shows in the UK because because the tour is um, tremendously complicated to the horror of everybody <laughs> who has to pay for it, <laughs> right? So all the promoters, they're what are you doing? You know, because for example, we've um, been working with uh, Epic Games, so with Unreal, mm-hmm. to uh, build virtual worlds. So we have a, a planetscape which is all generated in real time on the stage. And so you can shine lights into it. And if I move around, we have some AI bot things that can 
interact with me and follow me around on the stage. Uh-huh. And uh, of course, all that is really complicated and stupid. I mean, I think what, <laughs> what when I said to my, you know, when 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 people cost it out, they say, oh, this science guy is going to go and give a talk. Yeah, just gonna, he just needs an overhead projector or something. You know, those things you used to write <laughs> yeah. the thing. Hello, yeah. I'm going the to dry talk erase. about the universe. Yeah. yeah, and so they cost it all out. And then I go, no, actually, I want a 30-meter wide LED screens, uh, virtual worlds created. Um, I mean, I <laughs> the, the intro video is um, I'd spoke to a friend of mine who is a conductor, an orchestral okay. conductor. Uh-huh. And I said to him, what... Um, if what should Stanley Kubrick have used in 2001 <laughs> for the music? What where did Stanley go wrong in 2001? And he immediately said he should have used this piece of music by Sibelius, Sibelius's Fifth Symphony, the Third Movement, which is it was written in 1915, and it's this beautiful piece of music. And it's at one level it's about swans taking off from a lake, but at another level it's about the deep beauty and uh, coherence of nature. Right, the the, the the, the the deep mm. majesty of nature and it just was it sounds like every science fiction film you've ever heard it was from <laughs> 1915 and everybody's ripped it off ever since uh, it's a beautiful thing so i made i basically remade 2001 in eight minutes to this piece of music which is how the show opens cool. and, and of course that actually probably per minute cost more than 2001 <laughs> so yeah so yeah so it's it's quite a an ambitious um it's my friend robin Ince, my is a comedian who, who comes with me to lighten things up a bit uh, I, I sort of say sometimes you know thank you for coming to this um thing it's uh and he always says yes it, it's a show though it's not a lecture at these prices right <laughs> so it's yeah. got to be redefined as a show but it sure. is a show so it, the, so you know, it's almost like a giant screen behind you isn't it yeah led yeah and yeah. we put as much as we can into the venues so mm-hmm. however much we can fit into each venue we put in. Okay. It's like Lego LED screens. You can just build them. Just stack in. them on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think a little bit of uh, like how they shoot, um, well, a lot of things now, but I think the Mandalorian was the first one where instead of using a green screen or a blue screen, they have a giant LED backdrop that kind of like interacts with the camera movement and everything. That's it, um, using Unreal, which is what yeah. we've done on, on the on the live show. So you're just doing a live version of that. Live version of Mandalorian, yeah, yeah. That's that's we can back to lightsabers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I was also when you were talking about two thousand one. I was like, do you have a stage that rotates where you can like idea. walk in a circle and it looks like you're yeah, you know. I, I, my promote is can can we do that? Can yeah. we can we have a rotating stage? Last so minute edition. Like I'm in a space yeah. stage. He yeah. says, yeah, just, we'll just throw it together. So we're on. <laughs> I'm calling the production company now. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Good idea. We'll we'll. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, see how much money we can lose. Like, Thanks, Joe. Yeah. So, yeah. um, so you're still working out some kinks and some some bugs and getting it all figured out and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it does. Um, I mean, it does actually change as well over because it's not really um scripted. Because I, it is obviously, you know, I know what I'm going to talk about, uh-huh. but I do like to get distracted because, sure. Uh, for example, I'm. I'm doing a lot of work on black holes at the moment. I'm writing mm-hmm. a book on black holes, but also I have a part of a PhD student that I'm co-supervising who's working on black holes. And so it is possible and likely that during the section where, where I talk about black holes, I'm going to go off on <laughs> a tangent. We have actually a black hole that um, in graphics that we 
a company called DNEG did for us, which, um, which, uh, so they did the black hole in Interstellar. Oh, and right. They, yeah, yeah. Um, that, With that uh, Leonard Susskind, right? Uh, Kip Thorne. Kip Thorne. Oh, so it's, it's, right. it's Kip's um, code, but which has been published yeah. actually. So uh, working with DNEG. So, so we use that code and it's great because everything that you see in those simulations is, it's, it is a simulation. It's using Einstein's mm-hmm. general relativity. No kind of artistic license really, other than the way you construct the so-called accretion disk around it. Right. Um, so it, I can talk to it you know, because it's there behind me. And we, we, we orbit around it in my the view that we did. Uh-huh. So you can see all the, the way the stars shift around it as you orbit, or the images of the stars. It's spectacular, mm-hmm. actually. That's really cool. Yeah. And I think, like, I wonder, because I know that one of the, the things about that sort of, I, can't, I keep forgetting the name of it, but the way we were talking about with Mandalorian, as an actor, it's something you can play off of and get, you know, emotion from. You're not just looking at a, a blue screen or something. You're actually looking at the thing and reacting to it. I, I bet yeah. I bet you get a little bit of that too, just just kind of like you can, more presence, I guess. And as we're playing with it, the interesting thing is you can you can change camera angles from the lighting desk, right, on your graphics. So traditionally with graphics, with TV graphics or film graphics, you have to render them and that's it. So you, you have to de- determine everything ahead of time. And if you want to change a camera move, you've got to re-render it and it's tens of thousands or hundred thousand dollars or something to redo mm-hmm. it. But with the uh, using those technologies, you can just go one night, you can go, actually, it'd be nice to go a little bit closer to that city in the distance. So let's just move the camera in. I can change the lens. You can go mm-hmm. wide angle or narrow angle, change the light in state, let the sun set. It's really fascinating, actually, the way That's that you can crazy. play with it. Yeah. I actually um, went to school for film and TV about 50 lifetimes ago. But um it's, it's funny how much has changed since then. Like even when I was learning, we had, um, I was cutting actual film on what they called a steam back, like the reel to reel kind of thing. Yeah. Like, like my grandpa would have done. And of course all the kids did here are like, seriously. Um, yeah. but even like while I was there, nonlinear editing became a thing like computer editing and premiere and final cut pro and all that. Mm. And now they have like, you can just build whole worlds and interact with them in real time. It's just, that's, yeah. it's and amazing. we do, you know, the, the shows, cause at the end, it, well, you'll see it has a kind of a we run some credits over the over this world you know it's just like a bit of a movie ending you know mm-hmm. and and i can and i do sometimes we'll look at the credits and i can change them every night so i can add different people in if that we could, i could put the name of the theater in and just re-render it you know because the, oh. the laptops are powerful enough now even yeah. though for a film geek like you our resolution is uh 8000 by 2000 pixels which is because it's a very oh, wide <laughs> aspect and a lot yeah, of pixels yeah. But um, for the real geeks, the, it turns out that the uh, I'm going to advertise. I can advertise. I don't care. I didn't get them for free. I bought them. But I bought a, a one of the new M1 Macs, and it really does actually um, render quickly at a premiere. So there you go. And I, I, I promise you, I have no sponsorship from Apple. I'm just telling you <laughs> that uh, it's quite, it's capable of doing that cool. in a reasonable amount. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the I'm new, sure there the are new Mac Pros with those. Something yeah, the, yeah. that's what I've been doing. I'll be able to bend space time with it. Um, no, it's funny. Cause like when I was in college, um, they still didn't have the school didn't have nonlinear editing yet, but there was one guy that had a hard drive big enough to handle video and people were literally paying him to learn how to edit on his computer. It was a 13 gigabyte hard drive. <laughs> yeah. And we were like, there's never going to be a bigger hard drive than that. That's insane. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's 
It's just funny. My my first PC had a 40 megabyte hard drive. I remember it so vividly. Mm-hmm. 40 megabytes. And, <laughs> and it filled geek. a room. <laughs> it was, Maybe not it, that it was far quite back. a big, slow thing. It was, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting, actually. I was at... Um, I was at JPL. We were, we were just, um, it's one of the reasons I'm here in California. Mm. We've been making a, a, a film, a little film following Perseverance, the rover across the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you talk about the technology that's in Perseverance, the rover, it's impressive at one level, but it's, it's extremely slow because they have to be radiation-hard electronics. And mm. so, so these processors are 1990s processors. I think, they, I think they're 130 megahertz processes wow. remember that i mean when did you last uh, have a computer that was <laughs> megahertz? the point is it doesn't crash so it can survive on the surface of mars with the radiation and so on so it's very reliable but they're yeah. so far you know back in terms of computing power and it, and it drives itself it's an incredible machine uh-huh. and drives itself autonomously across the surface of mars using a processor that you would have probably been like you said editing video on 15 years ago or 20 years ago how much of that, though, is, is for the radiation reasons and the safety reasons, and how much was just because they started working on it a long time ago? No, it's, it, it, it is um, the electronics, because really? the, the helicopter on Mars, mm-hmm. Ingenuity, that thing is way more powerful than the rover, because it didn't have to be specced to the highest space standards, because it's an engineering right. test. So yeah. it's basically a couple of mobile phones. Uh-huh. And it wipes the floor with the, <laughs> the rover because it has to, because it's a drone that has to fly yeah. itself, and that's hard. A lot of processing, so it's really interesting. So yeah, if you could just stick a couple of phones in it, in the things, they'd mm. have far more intelligence. But of course, you zap it with a cosmic ray, and it breaks. Wow, basically, that's funny. I was actually just working on a video about the South Atlantic anomaly, and. Um, and how like there's some satellites that have gone through and had what do they call them single, single event upset. Single event upset. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I knew it was like SCU, <laughs> but I couldn't remember what it stood for. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, so it's just a weird little thing. We just kind of yeah, yeah. touched on the same thing there. Um, so so this tour, when does it start? So it starts at the end of April. Um, okay. What is the first date? April twenty. April. April twenty second in DC. Mm-hmm. And then come to Philadelphia, New York, Boston, just after that. And then head off across the States, going to some places I've never been before. Um, and we end up in the end of June in Texas. So that's so where I am. I'm in Dallas. I know oh, we'll be in Dallas. Point. When are we in Dallas? Uh, I see it sees. No one. My people. <laughs> Do not have the... <laughs> I haven't got people. That's why I, I'm actually you're, pretending for the, for the viewers that there's no one in here. There's nobody. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying yeah. to be grand. And, oh, June 23rd. June 23rd. Okay. June 23rd in Dallas. The last time I was in Dallas uh, was when I was in my band, D-Ream, a band that I was in, in the 90s. And we played a little gig somewhere called the Lizard Lounge. Yeah. Yeah. Which, is it still there? I don't think so. It, I think it shut it down to, not too long ago. Yeah. yeah. So we, that's the last time I was in Dallas. It must have been like 1993 or something. Mm-hmm. So okay. So you know what? That answered my question. I was going to ask if you had done tours before. Like, cause, cause I, I've never done anything like that. I've been kind of dipping my toe into thinking about doing live stuff just to sort of support the channel and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of just going on a tour and just traveling and having a whole group of people, it sounds fun, but it also sounds grueling. 
Um, it, it's like a whole lifestyle, sort of. It is. I mean, and I have. So I've done really big tours in the uh, you know, UK, Australia, um, New Zealand, those places. And we mm. also did one uh, big US tour, actually, uh, but in smaller venues about two years ago, two, three years mm -hmm. ago. Um, so I, I like it. I mean, I enjoy it. Uh, it, I, I try to do it in an enjoyable way. So I don't do anything else, which is nice because I've always got so many things sure. going on, you know, with the, at the university and all the things <clears throat> that I do. So in some sense, it's quite good to just go, okay, all I have to do is be awake from <laughs> 7.30 till 10. Or whatever. Uh, so that's it. The whole day is that. And the rest of the it wave. is just focused on that. Yeah. That's almost, so yeah. It. It's like clarifying you don't have to, you're not as scattered. You have yeah. this one thing you're kind of focusing but, on. But, but in the UK, it's kind of a bigger thing. I mean, we play, you know, arenas. So it's, they're 15,000 seat venues. So oh. I think we're, it's rock and roll. We've got four yeah. trucks and two tour buses and a crew of 25 or something like that. So, and the great thing about the US tour is that although we're in smaller venues, all the, the production is that production. So it was, it, it's an arena production. Mm -hmm. squashed into a theater mm -hmm. which you wouldn't normally do because you you couldn't you couldn't do that you know you couldn't have all these fancy video effects and things if you yeah. were playing you know 1000 seat places but because we in the uk i can play 15000 seat places <laughs> i can i can create these <laughs> these things which is fun wow but what is it i mean you get up, you, you probably have a day or two in the city, whatever city you're oh, in, or yeah. is it just if like that, that day? It's often just one day. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So you just hang out at the hotel or do you try to get out and explore? Or I do. I, I like to, I like to, I'm not very rock and roll anymore. So if you go back to the nineties, <laughs> then yes, I, I would, after the show, I'd go out and go to bed at four in the morning sleep right. till the next show. Now, I don't. I go to bed straight after the show and then I get up and exercise, which I like. To, so so what I do is I see the city because I go for a run and try and find a nice park or something or down by mm -hmm. a river if there's a river there and find a place to exercise. So, so I'm really boring now, but I get to see the cities. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, in the, when I was in my band, I wouldn't do anything, <laughs> basically. I just... And do you have uh, like family that comes with you or anything? I mean, if you're if you're gone for months at a time... No, we uh, we actually arrange it so that it's it's outside of school holidays. So so school uh -huh. holidays, I stay, um, stay at home, <laughs> or okay. go on holiday. So yeah, I don't work, uh, when when the family are available, basically. Yeah, that makes so sense. That's the yeah. way I do it. My wife's a teacher, so we don't have kids, but I still have to like schedule around school stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still on a semester schedule myself. Yeah, when it comes to travel and stuff. Uh, well, that's all. That's that's really cool. I, like I said, I've never really been on a tour, and I think about musicians that go off and do that, and just kind of have to. Uh, I mean, traveling is fun, but it can also be really grueling. And and you, you hear you hear all those old uh, uh, songs from like Motley Crue about like on the road and you know living the life on the road and stuff. And it sounds fun, yeah. but it also sounds like an ordeal. But I think they just made it up, though. Motley Crue. I think they were just like <laughs> doing what I do. They're going to bed straight after the show. Um, <laughs> I think that they were, you know, just going home if they could. And I think it was just all a fantasy in their own minds. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe after a certain point, 
Maybe, I, yeah. maybe in their younger days they were they were partying all that. No, I'm sure they were. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just making it up. Um, I have no idea what Motley Crue got up to. I've, I've I don't no think evidence. I want to know. There's probably some some books out there about that. Yeah. Um, so you get to talk about science all the time. I thought I would give you a chance to talk about something that's not science for once. Yeah, well, no, there's nothing. I, I can. I, I if you want to <laughs> challenge me, I will turn it into science. So there you go. I, I've taken the challenge. No matter what it Whatever is, you'll turn me, it into science. I'll turn it into science. Well, no, I wasn't going to ask you about anything specific. I was just going to see if, like, um, I like to ask people, you know, what rabbit holes have you gone down recently? Like, what what movies might you be watching or TV show or books or just, like, what's what's just something outside of what you're always talking about that you're, like, into these days? Um, it's a good question because what I tend to do is um, bring, I think, so the show, the live show, is at one level about cosmology and the questions it raises, mm. you know, uh, black holes, the, the study of the, the deep structure of nature. But actually, it's also about the um, human impact of those discoveries, the emotional impact. So about wider society. So actually, in the show, we have, as I said, we have classical music, Sibelius, Mahler. Um, there are sort of literary and artistic references because... Because the thing is that the question, questions such as, there's a question I pose at the start of the show, which is, what does it mean to live a finite, fragile life in an infinite, eternal universe? Which I think is the only interesting question, actually. Uh, and it's a question that is raised powerfully when you consider the size and scale of the universe. Mm -hmm. That's a question about the human experience of life, right? And um. If you think about everything, like you said, movies, music, arts, for back hundreds or even thousands of years, most of it has been about that question. Mm. It's about the it's about dealing with what it means to be human. So I don't think there is any separation at all between anything that we could talk about, be it movies or literature or arts or whatever, and um, science. It's not they're not separate. They're, they're all uh, things that we do as humans mm -hmm. to try to understand what it means to be human ultimately i think so therefore whatever you ask it's about, <laughs> it's about that isn't it it's, it, it clearly is about that i think okay so but like that's that. so good so, so you want to know what movies i'm watching um i watched uh what did i watch the last movie i watched was on the plane here where and it was uh house of gucci because it was on oh, okay yeah on the on the thing and i really enjoyed it actually i know it's had loads of criticism but i just thought jared leto was incredible i thought he lifted it you know he changed that film into something else mm. i mean gaga was brilliant as well which is always fantastic so so i enjoyed that film that was the last one that i watched okay i haven't seen that one is it nominated it's for any oscars ridley scott i think it is it's you know ridley scott as i don't think has made a i mean he's made some of the best films in my view ever met i mean you know alien and blade runner yeah. obviously i love gladiator but also um even his the things i would consider to be not so good particularly prometheus which i was so annoyed about because it started so well and then i i think if only you'd ask me to tell you just, <laughs> just let me direct this plot a tiny bit uh, and it, it was such a promising idea and it went off the road. but even then it's an enjoyable film i think so so yeah so there you go. I, i'm a film critic now but so i like ridley scott <laughs> 
and I like Lady Gaga and everything that she does. So, you know, it's I, I would recommend House of Gucci, but okay, that's some people it. say it's too long. But you, there's no there's no such thing as too long if you're on a transatlantic flight. I there's see. only too short, actually. <laughs> so, or, or Interstellar went to well. another one. <laughs> I hear the Batman's about three hours. So, I'll watch that on the way back. Yeah. <laughs> If you want to watch three more hours of Batman. Um, well, it's kind of interesting what you're just saying about like kind of everything coming back to science. Cause it's like the question and um, it's sort of a universal thing that we all think about. Um, and yet there seems to be, um, I don't want to say a pushback, but like some, some people just have a hard time getting into science and I've never really understood that myself. It's like, how can you not be blown away when you hear about the scale of the universe and that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, it's it's just a, a it's a a manifestation of our curiosity. That's that's all right. it is. Um, with with a with a very important caveat, which is really important actually, which is one of my great heroes, Richard Feynman, wrote a great essay called "The Value of Science" in 1955, in which he reflected on what's the most valuable thing that the study of nature teaches us, and how that can be used in other fields of human endeavor. And um, the most important thing he said was that science nature very often tells you that you are wrong, right? So, so whatever your opinion is and however important you are, um, if your view of nature is wrong, then nature will ultimately tell you and you have to accept it. Mm -hmm. So he said that scientists have a great deal of experience with being wrong. And um, you, it's a delightful experience because you've learned something. So the, the way you thought the world works turns out not to be. And so you know something that, that and you've, you've learned something, so you, you understand more. And um, so he called science a satisfactory philosophy of ignorance, which I think is a brilliant <laughs> like definition. Yeah. And uh, But his point was that you can take that, right, take that delight in being wrong, the fact that you don't know, because obviously, in order to do research, you have to first accept that you don't know. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't do research. That's the way that we have built our civilization. But you can take that idea and transplant it to other fields of endeavor, such as politics, for example. So imagine that our politicians um, uh, started every speech by saying, well, of course, you know, I could be wrong here. Of course, I don't know. It's really complicated. But the best, the best variability at the moment, I think this is a way to go. And if we find some, we make some observations and it's not gone quite right, then we'll just change a bit and we'll fiddle around and we'll do something else. So we'll do, we'll increase taxes or we'll decrease taxes or we'll change the way that we target environmental emissions or something, anything, whatever it is. Imagine if they said that, then we would live in a profoundly better world, right? Well, instead what we have are a bunch of people who are certain. And the one, I don't get involved in politics so much, but the one piece of advice I always give people is if if the person you're going to vote for sounds really sure, then do not vote for them. Yeah, <laughs> They're not suitable, right? Uh -huh. they're, they're, they're either dumb or disingenuous or some combination of the two because they should know that it's really hard to run a country. In fact, Feynman said in that essay, that democracy is um, a manifestation of that. It's the, it's the acceptance that we don't know how to run a country. So what we do is we change everything every four years. <laughs> Why would you do that? If you think you know how to do it, mm -hmm. you wouldn't do it, right? Uh, but of course, 
So, so the pendulum swings backwards and forwards. And that is, as Feynman said, and Oppenheimer said this as well, the great Robert Oppenheimer, that, that swing, when you see the swing, then what you're seeing is your freedom. Right? You're seeing the fact that, that this bunch of people thinks this and this, this, and we'll try them all. We'll try all these different ways. So mm-hmm. it's the manifestation of your freedom when, when, when people vote and it goes against you and it goes towards you and it goes against your beliefs and it goes, and, and that's just great. The moment mm-hmm. he stops doing that is the moment that you're no longer free. And we've made a big mistake, as Feynman said, because every time we think we know how to do it, then we make a mess of it. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in history, right? The more certain the leaders are, the bigger mess they make. Seeing some of that in Europe right now. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's people who've forgotten that the road to wisdom begins mm-hmm with the statement i don't know mm-hmm. that's what they and once you've forgotten that you 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 should be you should not be running a country yeah no i like that um it's funny as i've gotten older i've seen the pendulum swinging so I, I've, I've kind of become more of an observer against. and it's kind of been like oh everything's going this way no oh, wait <laughs> you know it yeah. always swings back the other sometimes way sometimes we won't agree and sometimes we'll agree but yeah. that's democracy yeah you brought up Richard Feynman a lot here. Um, and what's funny is I'm, I'm thinking about doing like a, a kind of a bio video on him or something because he comes up all the time. Like he just he just kind of did everything. Yeah. And and like influenced a lot of people. Well, I mean, he was a, a truly great physicist, first thing yeah. to say. Nobel Prize richly deserved for quantum electrodynamics. Um, but and if you look at if you want to know about physics and you're at the kind of undergraduate level, you, you know, you should be looking at the Feynman lectures because they're mm. absolutely brilliant. Um, but also, I was I, so I'm going to name drop now. So, so I did an event with um, Kip Thorne just a while ago. We did a conversation together, and uh, Kip knew him very well and worked with mm. him. And he said that um, so Feynman was always uh, very dismissive of uh, philosophy, for example, the philosophy of science. He said, um, what did he say? He said, I think it was Feynman who said that the uh, philosophy is as useful to scientists as ornithology is to birds. <laughs> I think that was Feynman. <laughs> but, but he, however, um, Kip said that he thinks that Feynman's book, The Character of Physical Law, is the best work of the philosophy of science ever written. And he said he, he said that to Feynman once. He took it into his office and said that. And Feynman threw him out of his office. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the thing about Feynman is that he was, if you read The Value of Science, which you can just get online, right? You just like Feynman, The Value of Science comes up. It's the most beautifully written, eloquent, thoughtful piece of writing you could ever imagine. It's absolutely, it's, it's profound and brilliant. And I, I think Feynman sort of played on this kind of idea that he was kind of a guy from far Rockaway, New York, and he was kind of a bit tough. And and and, and the way that he lectured often was to, you know, use that kind of slang, you know, that, that language. He was very, mm. very down to earth. Right? Mm. But he was capable of writing this most tremendously deep and insightful prose, which he which he could do. Mm. So he's a very multifaceted individual and and a but first of all, a brilliant scientist. Uh-huh. 
well, those are two different skill sets, being a brilliant academic and also being able to communicate that to like the masses, um, yeah, which I, mean, I would argue you are as well. Um, oh, but uh, you, you mentioned something earlier about kind of engaging people's emotions around science. And I wanted to touch on that a little bit because we, we are not logical creatures. We're emotional creatures. And um, there is sort of like a, a, a gap you've got to bridge between getting that hard logical science stuff into people's heads through an emotional sort of catalyst, you know? Mm. Um, I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit in terms of like how you do what you do. It's because I, why did I become interested in astronomy? Because I had a, you know, an emotional reaction to the night sky. Clearly that that's what it was when I was younger, five, six, seven years old. I just found it, you know, powerful, romantic, fascinating thing. And I, and so I think at the heart of all science is just a, a desire to know, which is an emotional reaction. If you're a biologist, you might get fascinated by the way that the ants are making a path across your garden or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, but it it's interesting. Not not because you're you're initially interested in the detail. You've just found something interesting that you want to understand and so i think that at the heart of science at the base of science is an emotional uh there's an emotional seed which is that you are just interested and fascinated by something mm-hmm. um and then the the uh, again <laughs> feynman feynman had to say <laughs> for everything right feynman it all comes back um, to feynman said he well, I, can, I don't even need to quote Feynman. I can I can do my version of it. So, if, if you, uh, I made a series years ago called Wonders of Life, which was a, a science, a physicist view of biology. Really, it was as inspired by a book that Schrödinger wrote. So Schrödinger of Schrödinger's cat fame mm-hmm. and quantum mechanics, called What Is Life, back in the nineteen forties, where he really laid the foundations for a lot of modern biology, in particular DNA. Right, it was a very and also bringing thermodynamics into biology. It's a very profound book. And so I made a series like that. And then I realized that if you look at, for example, a blade of grass, right? So go, go out into, everyone can go outside now after listening to this and find a blade of grass. And actually, the whole history of life on Earth is written into that blade of grass. Like we share a common ancestor with that blade of grass mm. um, back um not actually hugely long ago, actually, the eukaryotic cells, you know, whenever that was, let's say two billion years ago, maybe, but mm-hmm. it's quite a long time. But, um, you know, but the same, you know, there's a single origin to life, the last universal common ancestor called mm-hmm. Luca, which is back there about 3.8 billion years ago, we think. So uh, in what you should see there is is an organism that's essentially, it's essentially four-dimensional, right? The structure of it mm-hmm. cannot be understood without understanding the history of a planet. And and that's what science does for you. It makes it even more beautiful. So it's a beautiful thing in itself. But the more you know about how it got there and what it represents and its story, the more beautiful it becomes. So that's not that's emotional. Yeah. It's an emotional reaction to the thing. So you should have an emotional reaction to a blade of grass because it encodes the history of a planet. This podcast episode is brought to you by Curiosity Stream. So I mentioned earlier that many people consider Brian Cox to be the heir apparent to David Attenborough as Britain's premier science communicator. Well, one of the people who believes that is 
Well, David Attenborough himself. And you can watch a lot of his programs on CuriosityStream. Uh, that includes Light on Earth, which is an award-winning documentary that explores the use of bioluminescence in nature. In other words, how plants and animals create light to communicate, to hunt, to mate. Uh, that's pretty much most of what plants and animals do, but that's along with some of the other documentaries he's made, like Ant Mountain, which explores the world of ants, Deep Ocean, which is about life miles below sea level, and Hot Tuna, which is not about a spicy tuna sandwich. It's about the Atlantic bluefin tuna, which is far more interesting than it sounds. Um, his documentaries are famous for getting footage that's never been filmed before, so they're all groundbreaking in one way or another, and they are, of course, just a handful of the thousands of documentary films from some of the best filmmakers around the world on just about any topic you can possibly have an interest in science art engineering history you name it even better when you sign up for curiosity stream you get free access to nebula the streaming platform where you can find all my youtube videos except totally ad free uh, along with extended cuts and companion videos and original series like my mysteries of the human body series Nebula is basically a curated list of awesome, smart YouTube content, free of any algorithms or advertising. Seriously, most of the YouTubers that I follow are on there, uh, and you can see their videos before they release them to YouTube. So yeah, it's, it's a really cool service. And the best part is, you can get Nebula and CuriosityStream for the ridiculously low price of $14.79 for an entire year. I actually, I did the math. It comes out to $0.62 cents per month per service, and you'll never run out of amazing content to watch. So yeah, to get all that, just go to curiositystream.com slash joescottpod. Again, that's curiositystream.com slash joescottpod. And you can start the process of wondering why the hell you waited so long to sign up for this thing in the first place. Because it's that good, I promise you. Uh, and because science says you have to hear something three times before you remember it, that's curiositystream.com slash joescottpod. So go check it out. And thanks to CuriosityStream for supporting this podcast. Now back to Brian. I, I, the, the context I feel that like that sort of understanding brings, I, I, I love what you just said because, um, I didn't, I didn't really have a science background when I started my YouTube channel, it just kind of like became a science thing, just sort of an accident, which is great. But, um, as I've, you know, been more in that world for a while and have more context around it, like you're right. I could, I could just be walking down the street. You point out a blade of grass, but it could also be a tree. It could be a beetle walking down the street or something, you know? And it's just like, when you have that, that deep time context, it's just like, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. And I, I try oh, to get that across to people. I feel like if I can share that, then I've done my job. Sagan, you know? Sagan said it. There's a beautiful, I think it's in, um, billions and billions i can't remember which book it's in but he writes about um when he was a kid and he looked at the stars and he said what are those things and someone said to him they're just lights in the sky kid right and he thought, <laughs> so he went to a whatever library his mum took him to a library and he got a book and he found out that they were other worlds like yeah. suddenly and he thought well, there were other worlds and now we know that they've, they've all got planets right that to, to a good approximation all of them have planetary systems so every point of light you see in the night sky has got planets. So there's a solar system there. Yeah. And then you can dream about those other worlds. Are they Earth-like? What are they like? Super Jupiter-type things. What's up there? You know, so the more you know, the moment you know they're not just lights in the sky, they're infinitely more magical. And that's true. It's always the case that the more knowledge you acquire, the more magical something becomes. Yeah. That's not science. That's just emotion, right? That's just... That's just the way it is. It's interesting to know more. Yeah. So uh, that makes me want to talk about James Webb because they just yeah. released sort of the first, not really the first image, but the first test image that's a real image that yeah, just came out the, the other galaxies, day. you see the galaxies, though. You can the see the galaxies behind yeah. it. So it's not just the, the star with its points, and it's kind of interesting about the optics of the yeah. web. 
and it's all focused and it's cool, right. brilliant. But then you look in the background and there are just countless. Yeah. I don't know how many there are in that image, but there's a lot. If you it's like a it. mini deep field sort of in yeah. that one first image. Um, the Well, the star that it was on, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, that's a star. And then they were saying it's a hundred times less bright than what you could see from the human eye. And yet it's blowing out this, this picture. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah. It's quite a machine, the web. Um, and it's, you know, it's got a lot of purposes, but one of them is that it can see into what's called the infrared, which is longer wavelengths. Right. And the reason we're interested in long wavelengths is because the light from very objects that were forming very early on in the history of the universe, um, so from which the light has taken well over 13 billion years to reach us, mm -hmm. um, those things, the light's been stretched by the expansion of the universe. And it's been stretched so much for the earliest stars that Hubble, which is our most powerful space telescope other than the web, can't see it because it's gone into the outside of its visual range. Mm -hmm. So the web is going to be able to see the formation of the first stars and galaxies, you know, so it can see further back in time than mm -hmm. the Hubble into the, what we call, well, the dawn, right? Just the, right. the edge of the cosmic dark ages before the dawn. Um, so that's just one of the things. The other thing is, is it's powerful enough to look at planetary atmospheres beyond the solar system, exoplanets, to start looking at them really seriously, to, to say what's in them. You know, they, yeah. do they have the carbon dioxide or nitrogen? If you saw oxygen, high concentration, uh, I, I I doubt it, but if we did, you'd see photosynthesis in action, most likely. So you'd discover life. So is that specifically what they're looking for most is the, the oxygen or are there other elements that would indicate maybe advanced <clears throat> civilizations or something like that? Well, exactly. Someone said half jokingly to me once that imagine if we found CFCs. <laughs> you know, then you, you know something that can only be created by a right. civilization. I mean, I don't think anyone expects that. Mm. Imagine if you saw a heavily polluted atmosphere. <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone had fucked the planet up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like this would be the greatest discovery ever because yeah. you saw they're just like us. Mess of it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't expect that. I, I think uh, that civilizations are extremely rare. That's mm. my guess. But um, you never know. <laughs> so are you a rare earth hypothesis kind of guy? Um, rare, rare civilization kind of guy. So I think that, I mean, we know that there are a lot of earth, potentially earth-like planets. I mean, I think the current estimate is of order 20 billion in the Milky Way. Mm. So maybe one in 20 stars or one in 10 stars, something like that. Um, but that's potentially earth-like. Uh, so rocky the right distance from the star, possibly to have oceans on the surface if the atmosphere is right and so on. Um, and and you might expect, and we don't know, but knowing what I know about biology and the history of life on Earth, you might expect some of them to have microbes on them. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem so far-fetched, given that we know that life arose pretty quickly on the Earth when the conditions were right. Um, it, it, there doesn't seem to be anything magical about the transition from geochemistry to biochemistry, which is what mm. life is on a planet. But the history of life on Earth also tells you that from the origin of life, it took some the best part of, or even a bit more than, three billion years to go from the origin of life and some single-celled things to complex multicellular life. 
-hmm. And three billion years is a long time, even in astro astronomical terms. <laughs> it's a quarter of the age of the universe. Yeah. Uh, and so that suggests, without knowing anything else, if you just have to guess, that suggests that the transition from single cell living things to complex anything, something as complex as a blade of grass, never mind a human being, something that can build a civilization, is not as likely, right? Because it took, I mean, you think, so from the origin of life on Earth to, to, to the first industrial civilization on the planet is 4 billion years, right? 3.8 billion years. Mm. Um, the, if you ask the question, how many of those potentially Earth-like planets are stable over that kind of time scale, then the answer might be very few. So, so it's in that sense that I think I'm a, a rare Earth person. I, I think that if I was forced to guess, uh, with the additional bit of evidence that we haven't seen any evidence of anything, so yeah. we, you know, th th there isn't any evidence of advanced civilizations out there currently, um, then I think you put those seasons together and you think it's probably biology. I, th I think the biology is the thing that stops it. There's a very good friend of mine, actually, um, in Manchester, who's a professor of zoology, and he likes to say that all there will be there at best is slime. Yeah. So it's probably a slime-filled galaxy, if I was to guess. I'd love to be shown to be wrong. There's no reason why yeah. I shouldn't be wrong, though. I mean, it, you know, no one would be less surprised than me if a flying saucer landed tomorrow, because I'd go, okay, well, that, that's fine. <laughs> that, that solved the problem for me, because now I understand. Because yeah. it's a big mystery. It's like, why, why, with all this time and all those planets, does it seem that nothing... There's no big spacefaring civilization out there that's written its... Mm existence the evidence of its existence across the sky it's a problem so so i'd just be i i'd be, I'd, I'd just tick it off and go okay that's good i i, I understand that fully <laughs> yeah so i wouldn't be surprised people always have a go at me on you know on twitter and things like that for going you, you're closed-minded you don't believe in the flying saucers you know and, oh, and, and i say yeah, well i dipped into that you know, a little bit i'm not closed-minded i thought about it very deeply and yeah. it surprises me that there aren't any flying saucers but i don't think we've seen any yeah. So I'm not, I'm very open-minded about the subject. But I just don't. I, I haven't. I've seen not one scrap of evidence from any any reputable source that tells me that we've been visited by aliens. And and when you play this on your YouTube channel, I will get another <laughs> barrage of shit. Oh yeah. From from yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. line after line of nonsense on Twitter from people. And oh. I'll just go no. I I just you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so. Some, so you're echoing me a little bit, actually, because I, I did do a video when um, you remember when the, they had that uh, report that they were doing to the to Congress, the the Pentagon had some yeah. uh, UFO program. Yeah. Um, so I did a video on that and I was basically kind of what you were just saying. I was like, I would love more than anything else in the world for this to be true. It's just it had the, the burden of proof is so high for this yeah. that a blurry image is just not going to do it for me. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, and I got all the comments and all the emails and stuff. And you can see it with them. Um, you, you talk about that, the uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. So if you look at the search for life on Mars at the moment, so the Perseverance rover, it's got experiments on it. It's going around. It's, it's taking cores. It, it's, it's on its way to a river delta at the moment. It can drill. It can do chemistry and spectroscopy and all these things. But ultimately, every scientist I've spoken to on that mission said that even if we get signs that there's complex organics there, which we could gather from those instruments, the only way we will believe it is if we bring those samples back to Earth 
and we subject them to experiments with these huge facilities we've got here on Earth. And even then, it will probably take about 20 years before people accept it. Because if you look at the, the, there are structures called stromatolites on Earth, right, which are now accepted as the oldest ex uh, evidence of living uh, organisms on the okay. planet. 3.5, 3.8 billion years ago off the coast of Western Australia, for example. And those things were the subject of debate, even though we had them in our hands. It, that for 20 years or more, people were arguing about whether they were evidence of life or not. Uh -huh. So that's how hard you have to work when you've got small amounts of evidence from mm -hmm. a long time ago in that case, or a different planet in terms of Mars, you've got to work very, very, very hard to show that you've not been misled. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the, that's we're going back to all the way to Feynman again, the satisfactory philosophy of ignorance. A lot of science is 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 what's called in my field particle physics. It's about errors. It's about quantifying the errors in your observations mm -hmm. what are the possible sources of error what are the you know it's like if you toss a coin 10 times it might come up heads 10 times doesn't mean the coins weighted there's a probability that will happen so you've got mm -hmm. to make sure that you understand the probabilities and things when you so when you're looking for life beyond earth remember that even looking for life on earth if you go back three and a half billion years, has been tremendously controversial yeah. because it's hard to show. Um, so it's short of, you know, very clear evidence of a of a, of a, a UFO literally landing in like Hyde Park or something. Yeah. Then I'd go, okay, uh, or, or you know, some signal we could receive. We look for it. We've got this SETI, which is a I, I strongly support. It's, it's mm -hmm. a really valuable scientific endeavor to go and listen i mean the first thing you want to do is look for evidence of civilizations out there so we do and mm -hmm. we haven't found any we, we mm -hmm. found a couple of little blips and they, they 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 don't end up being repeatable so then we try to look for them again they've gone like the wow the famous wow signal right, right? Yeah. so uh, it's just the case that you know it's, there's an analogy I sometimes draw, which is that, you know, we all get on aircraft, for example. Imagine getting on an aircraft. Um, imagine if they hadn't repeated, repeatedly tested it. <laughs> right, you know, imagine yeah. if someone had gone, I think the wings should look a bit like this, stick them on, it'd be fine. Then, you you know, imagine what that would be like, that experience. That that's It's just an example of how, we're in, in certain things, in engineering, we take it for granted that someone's really careful and it's good <laughs> when you build mm. a bridge. You don't just go, oh, I'd be all right. You know, just like the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, just yeah, yeah stick a few screws, it'd be fine. Yeah, you know, it's, things, yeah. it's, it's well tested. It's the same with knowledge, actually. So knowledge only becomes reliable knowledge when you test it. Like mm. a bridge only becomes a reliable bridge when you test it. It's the same. So yeah. I, I encourage people to do that when when they're just kind of guessing based on a fuzzy blob taken by someone on their 1990s phone you know just say <laughs> actually imagine that this the analogy is that this is an aircraft that i'm going to get on and imagine if it's been subjected to an equivalent level of scrutiny <laughs> maybe it's, yeah you know well, when you were talking a second ago about bringing samples back from mars i know that Perseverance is kind of doing that. It's collecting samples yeah. that are eventually, hopefully, going to be picked up and taken back. But even if you if you got that uh, back home and they subjected it to the experiments and they found some kind of microbe or something, 
Um, wouldn't you still have to prove that it didn't come from Earth to begin with? Yeah. Like, so like, that it, would be another controversy, I imagine, or another yeah, big debate. It's very possible. So we know that material is exchanged between Earth and Mars. We have Martian meteorites on the Earth. And we know oh, yeah. that microbes can survive space travel. Um, we know that they can exist in hostile environments like the International Space Station on the exterior, mm -hmm. for example. So um, there's no reason at all, you're right, where there couldn't have been a single genesis on Earth or Mars, and that life could have been transferred just randomly because the planets exchange material. Yeah. So you've got to show that it's a different biochemistry. Um, it's very hard to do. Yeah. Especially because you might have things like stromatolites, which are not really life at all. They're, 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 the, remain, they're the, the products of life, right? right. They're, they're the structural evidence of life potentially without the biochemistry because one of the ways you look for life on um in a rock is you look for um it's not really looking for just the elements the molecules and things it's looking for how they're distributed because life tends to clump things together and distribute okay. things in interesting ways uh -huh. so layers uh, or concentrations of things that's what life does so that one, the key thing that Perseverance is not doing is grinding things up and putting them into a laboratory internally to see what's in there. Because now it's much better understood, actually, that really part of the evidence for the life is how how the structure of the rock has been modified mm -hmm. by life. That's what we see on Earth. Mm -hmm. You see that that's one of the key smoking guns, actually. So it's hard to show that life exists. Um we think it probably does, otherwise we wouldn't be looking for it. You know, that's the thing. So again, you know, when people say, oh, you're so close-minded, you don't believe in aliens, you go, well, actually, I, I, most people do think there's a chance of aliens, otherwise you wouldn't build Perseverance and send it to Mars, mm. right? It, most people think there's a good chance that there might be Martians. Right. But, um, but, you know, as I said, it's, it's extremely difficult to show that's the case. And there might not be as well. Mm. I don't know. Can you clarify what stromatolites are exactly? I've heard the they're, term before, but not. They're found sure. in um in 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 Western Australia in particular. Uh, so they're 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 now, I suppose, I don't know what a geologist had called them, but let's call them almost like the fossilized. They're not fossils, but they're 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 structures that were created by microbes. Okay. So so they they they're big they they're rock that is has been arranged by life right basically uh, that's that's a way to say it okay. but it but it took um a long time to convince people that that was the case um but they're the oldest some of the oldest evidence of life on earth yeah okay um basically you were talking about the fermi paradox a minute ago about like um you know there's so many stars and everything how come we don't see aliens everywhere that was actually, that was a video on my channel that got me started talking about science stuff. I was just doing comedy stuff. And then I, I did a video on the Fermi paradox just kind of randomly. And that was the first video YouTube was like, hey, let's show this to some people. <laughs> and uh, that brought in some other people and it became a sciencey kind of thing. What but. were the jokes? What's the Fermi uh, paradox joke? Well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't really a comedy video. If I God, it was so long ago now. Um, but everything before that was just kind of like, it was actually called, um, ask Joe in the beginning. Now it's called answers with Joe, but, uh, I would get questions from people and I would just answer the questions. And that's yeah. what this was, was somebody asked a question on why don't we see aliens or something? So I did a video about the Fermi paradox and, um, 
there were probably some jokes in there, but I don't even remember what they were. It was a long time ago, <laughs> but um, I actually did a video fairly recently that was sort of challenging the, the um, premise of contact where, yeah. you know, we had this radio bubble that's gone out from our, our planet since, you know, for the last hundred years or mm -hmm. so. And the idea that some alien civilization could have picked up on that. So I actually kind of sat down and was like, okay, so, if it's about a hundred light years out because it's been about a hundred years and it moves at the speed of light, you know, so how many stars that are, you know, sun-like in that area mm. and everything. And, um, and I really kind of dug into it and I, 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 I came to the conclusion that, <laughs> that there's, there's nothing out there. I was curious what your opinion of that was. Nothing in terms of civilization. Right. Yeah. And in, in that, in <clears throat> that small area. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, in, in what sense? In the sense that we should have detected any civilization that was in such a bubble. In the sense of that there's a civilization out there that could have heard us inside that bubble. I could have heard us. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there aren't many. You're right. There's a thing, there's a little thing online, isn't there, where you can just type in a bubble and it tells you how many oh, Earth-like planets there are in that. I think we calculated it. Yeah, there aren't that many. It's true, there aren't that many stars. I, I don't yeah. know what the number is. I mean, it's a, a no. Do you remember in in a hundred light year bubble? Uh, I don't remember, but I want it was the, uh, the number ninety or ninety one or something like that is in my head. That seems like it might be something like I, I can't off the top of my head. I don't know. Yeah, but well, there's that yeah. picture though where you can see like a dot that is the radio bubble in the Milky Way, and it's just it's just a dot. It's like yeah, small. Yeah, I mean, it's very small. Twenty twenty odd thousand light years to the center. Yeah, um, hundred thousand light years across or so, depending on how you measure it. Yeah, so a hundred like light nothing. years is nothing. We and plus, it would get much. diffused so much by the time it got out a hundred, you know, light years and whatnot. And anyway, I, I pointed to it. Yeah, it's not things, a powerful but, signal. Yeah, true. Not many. Photons. And at some point, it might just blur into the rest of the background radiation and whatnot. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I agree. Some people yeah. didn't like that. But. <laughs> well, Contact is a great film. It is a great film, yeah. There's was a, another because it was telling it was just it was just trying to give you that sense, wasn't it, of yeah. going back in time as you go out and and distance. Mm -hmm. It was a good way of showing distance, and making that. Well, point. and that was another thing about the Fermi paradox was um, was the time factor. You know, if if the universe has been around for was it fourteen billion years or something, mm. and it took this long for us to show up and we've only been sort of a blink of the eye and in, in terms of the earth years and stuff, like how many civilizations might've come up and popped up and gone away yeah. in that time. You know, there's a, there's in the Drake equation, which is uh, Frank Drake wrote down mm -hmm. to try and it, it wasn't to try to estimate the number of civilizations really. It was to try and focus your mind on what the, what the variables are, how you should think about it. But at the end of that, the way that he wrote it, there's a, an L the letter L uh -huh. which is the length of time a civilization will be broadcasting or contactable yeah. through radio waves. And, uh, you know, you can set that. I mean, we've been around in that form, which is with radio telescopes. I like it that astronomers define civilization as when did you get a radio telescope? <laughs> <laughs> then you're civilized. And, you know, it's less than 100 years yeah. for us. So we've only been that L for us is the contactable lifetime of civilization. It is, you know, 100 years or so for us. Uh, and, you know, we could have gone, you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, 
we we could that, that could have been 20 years for us mm-hmm. 50 mm-hmm. years you know we're still in that position yeah where we could uh <laughs> you know how long is l how long is the lifetime of a civilization once it once it acquires nuclear weapons for example which it will how long does your civilization manage that mm-hmm. um it's not clear we're doing the experiment uh, and we've dodged it a few times and the way you use resources and what that does to the environment and whatnot. Climate challenge, all the things that you are inevitably challenged with yeah. as you industrialize. Um, Oppenheimer thought about this a lot because he, you know, on the Manhattan Project, he'd been felt himself responsible mm-hmm. for creating the bomb. Um, you can look at it many ways. You can say that he shortened the war in the Pacific, or you can say that he invented this thing that we don't have the wisdom to control he felt the latter i think um he was very worried about what he'd done and um you know he was surprised he just strongly felt and he might still be right that we didn't have the wisdom to control the knowledge that we've acquired through Mm -hmm. science um so it could be the case so that's that could be another answer so the great silence that people call the fermi paradox in fact there's nobody seems to be there might just be because we are fundamentally idiots (laughs) <laughs> so all it's the great stupidity is the maybe. great stupidity all yeah. intelligent beings are fundamentally just dumb yeah. <laughs> and the moment they work out how to do it they erase themselves from the universe that's mm. actually a possibility which you know and, and I, I challenge anyone who's listening to argue that there's at least a possibility that that's what we are mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it it gets kind of what's the word nihilist or something. But, but um, w- when I think about like you have planet earth and all the little things that kept it stable and, you know, our magnetic field and the moon and mm. all those things, um, all those little factors kept it the nice little warm little shell. And, and then, and mm. then the stuff starts growing on it. It's like mold, you know? Mm. And, and then this other mold starts like just going out of control and, and like digging up too much stuff and, you know, ruining the whole thing. It's like it, it really almost feels like an infection. I don't think so. I think that's, that's that, kind of a, a, a nihilist way of putting it. I guess. Yeah, but. I think it's, that's the, the I, I don't the, the way I look at life is that it's the most important phenomenon we, that exists in the universe. Without life, the universe is by definition meaningless. It's clearly that meaning enters the universe with consciousness mm-hmm. and consciousness is a property of living things. And so without living things, there's no meaning. So, so I think that let's flip it around. If this is the only planet in the Milky Way galaxy that currently hosts an intelligent civilization, then it's the only island of meaning in a sea of 400 billion stars. And therefore, we have a tremendous responsibility notwithstanding our physical yeah. insignificance to um to protect this island of meaning if we mess it up we will be responsible if that's the case for annihilating meaning perhaps forever in a galaxy so i think life's important you are a good counterbalance to me <laughs> <laughs> I'm here like we're an infection that needs to be no. Well, think about uh, it. I mean, I, I said I love what, I love what you just said though. That's that's good. It, yeah, I mean, what's the point of an asteroid? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? it's just yeah. kind of it's a lump of rock 
there's nothing. It's pointless. I don't yeah. care. When people say, should we mine the asteroids? It's like, well, yeah. They're just lumps <laughs> What of else rock. are they doing? Yeah, well, yeah, what are they doing there? There's no point. They're just there, yeah. floating around in space, waiting to be mined, I think. Oh. Life is a different thing. Life, that's why we're careful, and rightly so, about exploring Mars, because there might be Martians, right? Not things with loads of legs and things, but, right. but microbes. But even so, if they've been there, if there's a separate genesis of life on Mars, then that's a tremendously valuable thing, and we should think about it very carefully. Mm -hmm. um, if there are no Martians, <laughs> build cities on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know why not? <laughs> yeah, but if well, there are so Martians, that, we need that to. That sort be of gets to the uh, the sort of that rare Earth hypothesis thing I was talking about a second ago. Like, I guess there's two different ways of looking at it. One is that um, life is—I don't want to call it a fundamental force, but like a fundamental. Um, just something that's going to happen with the chemistry of the universe, you know, like given enough time yeah. in the right conditions, it's just going to happen. Um, and it might not even be like the life that we have here. It might be different kind of conditions, but it works mm. in a different way whatever. Um, and the other way of putting it is, is that it's the universe is just this absurdly huge thing. <laughs> and, and it just happened to some kind of weird fluke in this one spot that just happen to be the right conditions or something. Like, I guess those are two different ways of looking at it. Well, I'm sure, no, I'm sure, I'm sure there's life out there uh, and civilizations out there because you rightly say that, what was the word you used? Absurdly big. It's absurdly it big. It is absurdly big. I mean, there are, you know, the piece of the universe we can see, there are of order two trillion galaxies yeah. in, in the observable universe, which is a small patch of, the, of a possibly infinite <laughs> universe beyond. So there are definitely life and civilizations out there. There has to be. Um, but the question really is, it, how many of them are contactable? Uh, how far away do you have to go? And um, it could be you have to go out of our galaxy mm. to get another one. So I think yeah. that's the real question. It's, it's, it's internal to our galaxy. Because mm. I don't see we're ever going to be contacting things from another galaxy. I just think the distance is yeah. too big. So it's, yeah. it's, it's practically... You know, it, it's almost irrelevant. Right. Um, but in, inside our galaxy, 400 billion stars, then that's the question. What's, mm. What is there in there? Well, didn't we find on, on some comets like organic molecules? Yeah. Or organic compounds? Oh, carbon um, chemistry, yeah. Complicated. It gets complicated. Right. Everywhere. Yeah. So that, that was interesting to me because it's like, I mean, you can see on Earth with the tides and the little you know, tide pools and stuff. And over time and the bubbles, you know, all that, that whole theory, but like out in space in the, in the dust clouds and stuff that to be able to get the basic building blocks of life to happen hmm. to me, that, that kind of sounds like you could see a lot more of it out there. If, if the basic building blocks are that easy to create. And so, yeah, prevalent. but you've got to, if you think about it, you've got to um, somehow those building blocks have got to come together to encode information and copy it yeah uh, that that and that becomes a bigger ask right. and that requires yeah, yeah. metabolism it requires energy there's a thermodynamics there's fundamental things you need to compute right it's, it's running mm -hmm. it's running software essentially mm -hmm. um so that that's a bit different from a few amino acids floating around it's like yeah. how do they end up running software copying data and i think that's the the, the great mystery that we don't understand. Mm. Do you think it's possible there could have been a second uh, 
I guess the word is biogenesis of life on Earth. I, I, I don't know. Or I mean, it all come from one. I do ask biologists that, and sometimes people will say it's true that every living thing we are, are aware of, everything that we're aware of, shares the same biochemistry uh, at the fundamental level, same DNA uh, mm. coding or, or RNA, even viruses, right? That broadly speaking, you can see it's common. Um, so, the, but there is. There are people who think of a so-called shadow biosphere, where there, there might be some other kinds of life that perhaps are quite rare that we haven't detected. Perhaps the way we detect, we search for life wouldn't turn up, wouldn't detect it as life. You know, the, mm. I think that's on the fringes. I, I don't, but there are serious people who think about that, um, and it becomes relevant when you're looking for life on Mars because it would potentially be a different biology. Mm. So you know, you can't just test. You can't just, you know, like, well, obviously with COVID, we're all used to those kind of tests, the what yeah. we call them in the UK, the lateral flow test, the COVID test and things. Uh, That's all, the, you know, they're looking for biology. They're looking for the, the particular things, particular gene sequences or whatever it is. Uh, and and so if you've got a completely different biochemistry, then it's not obvious how you'd look for it. So there, there are people who think about that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's actually teasing up a video a little bit here, but there, there's a, a project that I've been working on where um, it's very different from most of my normal videos, but it's the idea is that the entire history of the earth in 10 minutes proportional, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and it's funny cause I've got some, some writers that work with me and um, one of them was working on it. He was like, and, and I was like, the, the point is that it would, you know, um, uh, unicellular life would probably begin, you know, early on, but then multicellular wouldn't be to like way later. Mm. Uh, you kind of touched on that a second ago, but, um, (laughs) but he was like, well, there's not a whole lot really happening between like minute two and minute six or something. And I was like, that's the point. Like this should be the most boring video in the world. It's just literally sitting there waiting for this thing. And, you know, but that gets the point across that like, for some reason, yeah, that jump from, from, uh, basic life to complex life, it just took a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I mean, there were some things going, you know, photosynthesis, you know, complex things going on in the single-celled organisms. Mm. Um, but you're right, the the origin of the so-called eukaryotic cell, which is the nucleus and everything, which is right. necessary for complex multicellular things, that that's shrouded in mystery, I think, and happened quite late. Could you consider that a great filter? This is a good life? question. The great filters are... That it, I touch on this in the live shows actually. That where, where is the great filter? Given given that, let's assume that we are the only civilization around. Mm-hmm. Is the filter in our past or our future? Right. Um. And uh, so if it's in the past, as you said, it could be, yeah, the the origin of multicellular life. So single cell life, fine. Multicellular organisms, not fine. So we've gone through the great filter. We're very lucky. Uh-huh. We've made it through, and here we go. <laughs> and our future yeah, is out yeah. there amongst the stars. Or, as we spoke about, the filter could be in our future, so it's very difficult for civilizations to go through the industrialization process, and they just don't. Mm -hmm. So there were lots of them, and they all stopped about now, basically, which is also a possibility. So obviously we hope the filter's in the past, and we came through. (laughs) uh, Then there's all those, like, uh, yeah, sci-fi concepts of, like, oh, no, there's a... A predator species out there wiping out everybody that they find and well thing. Yeah. 
That'd be cool, wouldn't it? At least we'd know then. <laughs> hey, if as that giant came. laser beam is wiping us is. out. Hey, there's there's aliens. All right. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> I'd be again. I'd be going. Oh, brilliant. That's we great. We finally got the answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, just we're just coming up on an hour here. I, I wanted to kind of ask a few little, just sort of trite questions, just because I got you here. You like never know the answers to them. I might end up going off on a That'd long be and complex scientific answer to the trite. I love question. it. That's why you're here. Um, <laughs> So, so we kind of talk about like James Webb and, and, you know, the kind of things that it could find and, uh, and that's all exciting and everything. If, if you had, if there was one scientific mystery and it could be dark matter or any of the things that we had just talked about or whatever, but like, if there was one mystery that you would like to see solved more than anything else, if you could pick one. I would pick at the moment, the thing that I'm working on, um, so in in some sense professionally is that with with a half a phd student shared with someone but also writing a book it concerns black holes mm-hmm. and it contain it concerns a very simple question that stephen hawking initially triggered and asked which is what happens to the information contained in something that falls into a black hole mm-hmm. um does it disappear from the universe forever or when the black hole has evaporated away, which is Stephen's great um, first great contribution to physics, was to show that black holes have a temperature and evaporate, emitting some Hawking radiation. Hawking radiation. Right? Yeah. And so ultimately the black hole will be gone and all that will be left is Hawking radiation. And there are very profound questions. His, his initial calculation suggested that the, the radiation is what's called thermal, which means technically that it contains no information at all about the, uh, anything that fell in. If you, if, you, if you burn a book, put it this way, very 2022, mm. right? So if you, if you burn <laughs> a book, um, then in principle, if you collect all the ashes and all the gas and everything from the book, in principle, you could reconstruct the book. So the information has not been destroyed. Mm. It's still contained in the radiation and the ashes that have left. But the problem with black holes according to Stephen's initial calculation, and really naively, the production process, the production mechanism is they radiate because they disrupt. So the vacuum, the so-called quantum vacuum, empty mm-hmm. space, is really disrupted by the presence of an event horizon. So it's one way you can think about it. So really, the, the, the radiation is, is, is really a property of the event horizon. But if you throw a book into a black hole, then it goes across the event horizon without drama, according to Einstein, free falls in and ultimately meets the end of time, the singularity in the middle of the black hole. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not in the middle, it's in the future. You have to be careful with relativity, right? So that the, <laughs> the singularity is a moment in time. So it goes to the end of time, let's put it that way. Um, so it's kind of gone. From the perspective of the book, it went to the end of time. But the radiation is being produced independently of the book, right? Nothing. It's not like being setting on fire, and 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 yet, it, everything we know about physics suggests that the information should be preserved. So you shouldn't destroy information mm-hmm. in any physical process in the universe. So the, a great challenge raised in the seventies and eighties, which has been solved, I would say, in the last two or three years to an extent. Is that challenge? Does the information get destroyed? We think it doesn't. 
everything it comes out and it's encoded in the Hawking radiation. Mm. But that's leading us to a very profound reassessment of the nature of space and time and what they are. So we're, we're now strongly of the view, I think most people, that space and time emerge from a deeper theory which is quantum mechanics ultimately mm-hmm. which doesn't have space and time in it <laughs> so it's a right. so it's a it, it's but that's all coming from the 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 study of the the very simple question of does just something that goes into a black hole come out basically again right. in the future and um so so that's quantum gravity and we need quantum gravity to understand if we're ever going to speak with any authority about the origin of the universe if it had one or to understand what was happening very close to the big bang or before the Big Bang, whichever way you want to look at it, then we need that theory. So I'd like to know what that theory is. And part of that is just because I'm so interested in black holes that you know, I'm fascinated in the in the developments that are... I mean, it's really weird. that the Just to give you a flavour, um, not only now are we sure, pretty sure, I think everyone's pretty convinced that the um, black hole evolution does not destroy information. Um but you say, if you say, well, how is it encoded in the Hawking radiation in, in the far future? Um, it's encoded it redundantly, it turns out. So in a, way, in a manner that is, seems to be similar to the way that we encode information in quantum computers in order to okay. prevent errors in the memory of quantum computers called the quantum error correcting code. So, so it seems that there's a... a, a Put it this way, it seems like the fundamental uh, view of the universe, the fundamental, the fundamentals of the universe are information theoretic rather than mm. physical. John Wheeler, great physicist, said he way back decades ago, he had this thing called it from bit, which is it, that reality comes from bits. It's all bits, uh, all key bits, quantum bits. Yeah. And um, that does seem to be the lesson from the study of black holes. Huh. Is um I I've heard, I think I covered the um, the holographic principle. Does that have yeah, something to do with thing. the encoding? It's the same thing. Yeah. So what what that's saying is that um the theory that you can write uh, the gravitational theory, so uh, uh, the theory of our world, right, the mm-hmm. general relativity and so on, you can write it completely uh, in terms of a theory encoded on the boundary. Uh, surrounding the space right yeah okay so that's the holographic principle that's a hologram which is that you can encode a 3d object in a 2d piece of film completely yeah um so it does seem that you there's at least a dual description of our universe on a surface somehow surrounding the universe whatever that means it's very vague because people (laughs) don't really understand what that means it was first done in what's called ads space which does have a well-defined boundary and now it's not yeah and so but but it broadly speaking it it comes from and there's one way of describing it which comes way back the hints of it were way back with um jacob beckenstein who worked with hawking a long time ago and he um was wheeler's student actually and he <laughs> long ago in the 70s realized that the the information how much information is contained in a black hole Ask that question. And it's equal to up to a factor of a quarter. But we can forget the quarter. It was a misdiagnosis, it was a misdefinition <laughs> or something. So mm-hmm. let's say it's equal to the surface area of the event horizon measured in square Planck units. 
So Planck unit is a fundamental length scale in the universe. Right. So for some reason, the information content of a black hole is proportional to the surface area of the event horizon. And you could imagine that's like saying, how much information can you fit into a library? Well, you would think it was to do with the volume of the library. How many books can you fit inside the library? But it turns out that it's as if you can only paper the walls of the library with the pages of the books. Mm. It's almost mm -hmm. as if the interior doesn't exist in some descriptions. And that's, again, what black holes have been pointing us towards. It's very weird mm -hmm. that that would be the case. There's a fundamental link between the surface area of a space and the information content it is capable of storing. That's that. That's quantum gravity, that connection, yeah. somehow. Nobody knows how, but it's quantum gravity. That's This is where my brain does start to melt a little. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, a lot, a lot. <laughs> oh, it's, this is the most, the most difficult stuff. But yeah. uh, it's funny because when you hear the experts talk about it, and I've talked to some of the real experts, and they're often reluctant to put it into words because it's quite well defined mathematically. Uh, um, there's a thing called the ADS-CFT correspondence. You might have heard of Maldacena and those it, people. Yeah. Um, uh, but actually, what it actually means, what the interpretation is, is not agreed upon. And so many of the real experts in the field, sort of rightly, I think, shy away from attempting to You'll hear people talk about wormholes connecting the interior of the black hole to the to the Hawking radiation in the in the far future, mm. things like that. But but actually, when you try and pin people down, they're not. They're, they're, it's it's more like they look like wormholes in the maths, but mm. it's not clear what that does. It really mean there's a wormholes opening up. You know, does it mean that? Where does it go? Yeah, yeah. So it it's. I think it, this is the cutting edge, but it's fascinating. What what mm. everyone agrees upon is that we're getting a glimpse of a deeper structure of space and time. Everyone agrees on that. So there's something else below it. And below time, underneath the, this thing we call time and space, there's something else. There's a great analogy, actually. That there's, um, it's really similar. When I look at the history, if you go back to the 19th century in thermodynamics, um, which is the study of you know, temperature and pressure and volume and entropy these things they what they were telling us although we didn't know it initially was that matter is made of smaller building blocks so they were they're actually telling us that there is a statistical theory of small things underlying these things that we measure temperature mm. and we can calculate like entropy things like that people wanted to do it to build better steam engines so that that's what they were doing but it was telling us about atoms and molecules, but we didn't know that. Uh, and it's actually only until the late 19th, early 20th century when you see that connection is made. So it was a signal there was something below, some deeper structure. Mm -hmm. And now we have the temperature of a black hole, the entropy of a black hole, the laws of thermodynamics for black holes. And what they're really telling us, I think, is that gravity is a statistical theory. So space-time is made of something else. So we just see we we're seeing the 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 average behavior of something yeah. else, and we call in that gravity and space and time in the same way that we call the average motion of molecules, temperature and and, and entropy and so on. So those so are that, basically just like how we experience this deeper thing. Yeah. So we're we're approximating 
Yeah. But it's what we do in our lives. You know, we don't think about atoms. We think we, it was a glass of water here. So we say, what's the temperature of it? Temperature is not a fundamental thing. It's a, it's a thing that tells us about the... It's a parameter that tells mm. us how ultimately how the, the molecules are distributed amongst the available energy levels, which is quantum mechanics, in this structure. So it's telling us about the distribution of energy in the structure and the structure itself and how many different levels of energy it can have, all sorts of stuff, which is deep yeah. underground, so <laughs> hidden quantum mechanics in here. But ultimately out of it comes this thing, temperature. Also, you can interpret it as the average energy of the things moving around. So it's got different interpretations, but it's basically telling us there's a substructure. That's what it is. So, yeah. So that's where we are with black holes. So, so there's a very long answer to wow, a short yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> next. So, <what>? no. <laughs> yeah, next. Next um, trivial question. I, I've had this sort of theory, kind of just talking about time and sort of time and space-time and whatnot. Like, we know that space-time is expanding. The universe is expanding, dark energy and all that. Could that expansion since time is connected to space, be the expansion of time kind of be like the forward movement of time? Is that what's causing time to move forward is the expansion of space? Does that make any sense? I've had this theory for a while. I've never talked to somebody smart enough to tell me how, how uh, bad it is. <laughs> there's a thing no, there's a thing called the thermodynamic arrow of time, which is um, hmm. really the statement that the, the asymmetry between the past and the future in the universe is to do with the special state of the Big Bang. So Sean Carroll, I don't know if you had Sean on the show, but he, he has mm. a really nice analogy where he says that it's like it, there's no up and down in space, right? But if you put a big thing there, like the Earth, then there's an up and down. You break the symmetry, right? Um, oh, okay. It's the same with time. So in one way of thinking about time is that because of this special, special configuration in the past, that determines the difference between the past and the future. But I've not seen anyone say that dark energy, relate dark energy to that. You you, you probably could somehow in a thermodynamic mm. kind of argument. But I, I don't see anyone thought, try really. to make that. I haven't thought about it. But yeah, but then that's very different. That's that's the that's our experience of time. Right. The thermodynamic arrow. That's different from the quantum gravity question. It's probably related actually, but um, mm. but it's in principle at the moment different to what it is. To saying what is time, so in the answer right. you don't know what time is. Right? It seems to be coming from quantum entanglement ultimately, but I'll leave it there because that seems to be what the, <laughs> the law, the, the 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 that seems to be where we're being pointed by black holes. It's something to do with quantum information entanglement. That the entanglement's a way of distributing information across large right. systems, basically. So, so it's something to do with that, probably. Mm. <laughs> and everyone just waves their hands. It's not pinned down yet. <laughs> Well, uh, my brain has been sufficiently melted, so I think uh, it's probably time to go ahead and wrap this up. But <laughs> yeah. uh, where can I point people to find out information about the tour and, oh, and where to go uh, and stuff? BrianCoxLive.co.uk. Okay. So, and all the things are there, and uh, all the things we talked about are in there actually. So, <laughs> amazingly, I try and cram this into a couple of hours with a load of graphics and music and a bit of comedy, but it is all in there. Cool. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah. I just happened to touch on all the same things that you're already doing. Yeah, absolutely. Which is great. So I'll see, well, I'll see you in Dallas. I would love to come see it. Yeah. Yeah. 23rd of June, I believe. 
Yeah, actually, we're, we're in Austin, town we're, soon after that. We're in Austin and Houston as well, down in Texas, and we're, mm. we're all over the place. Actually, well, you missed all, all the hurricane, all the tornadoes yesterday, so that's good. Yeah, was it okay? That I heard that was quite. It wild. got pretty touchy for a while. We um, we have a little crawl space under our stairwell, and we had to d- pull some stuff out of there to make some room just yeah. in case. But I still need to go put it all back. But it's, no, we 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 wound up okay. It's one of the west one, of Europe. It's kind of bad. One of the few advantages of living somewhere living in the, the, the i mean it's not the few advantages the uk is a great place to live but one of the advantages is that we 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 always moan about the weather but we don't really have very much bad weather you know it's usually okay it just means it's raining a lot uh-huh. i mean we, we have a you know we've had some big storms but they're not like the things that you get you're talking about <laughs> okay they're a bit, yeah they're a bit lower yeah. level almost always no i've been over there and like it just it was just raining and i'm like it just rains here it's not there's no thunder there's no lightning there's no swirling yeah no no maybe that's why maybe that's why the buildings last for a thousand years over there yeah there was well no it's it's because we it's because we built them we were building (laughs) we yeah we we would well actually i'm not i don't know actually there aren't many a thousand year old buildings actually are you have to go to the pyramids and things don't you stonehenge i suppose but stonehenge hasn't lasted well well, they're, I mean, they're definitely honest. older than the things here. I, I remember I went to a pub in, in London and it was older than my country. And I was like, wow, okay. That's, you don't get a lot of those in Dallas. It's true. Dallas is like, it was built in the fifties. This is a historical marker. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. a different place. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there was the, yeah, there, there was, a, there was something on Twitter. I can't remember what it was, but it was about being, being English. And it was basically being English. and just looking out the window saying, well, it wasn't supposed to rain today. <laughs> That's basically, that's what being English is. <laughs> Just day after day of. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't supposed to rain. Mm. <laughs> well, here it's like, uh, it's sunny and then it rains and then it storms and then it's sunny again. And it'll go from like 80 degrees and then three hours later it's 40 degrees. And that happened to me. I was in Austin earlier in the year and that happened to me. It was really warm and mm-hmm. then it wasn't. Humid. Yeah. And then it suddenly wasn't. Yeah, it's like what happened. It was literally mid-afternoon. Yeah, I think we've got this weird combination of uh, we're right by the coast, but there's also mountains to the west of us and plains between us and Canada. So it's just like this weird mix of airflow and stuff. But yeah, I'm not a weatherman, so I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah, we're just uh, in Britain. We're just in the in the sea, <laughs> surrounded by sea. It's all just nice and yeah, wet. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. I like it there. I need to go back. Right. It's been too long. Uh, well, this has been an honor. I've, I've been watching you for years and it's been, it's been really cool to get to talk to you and I appreciate you doing this. No, thank you. It's a, a real pleasure. And good thank luck you. with the tour. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. That was awesome. Uh, big thanks to Brian Cox for sharing his time with me. I really enjoyed this. And it's and it's cool to talk to somebody who really understands the science to like an excruciating level, but can talk about it in ways that are in no way excruciating. I mean, he can make it fun and relevant. You can just see that he has a passion for this stuff. It just oozes from his pores. Um, it's a very disgusting way of putting it, but you get the idea. So go check out the schedule for his Horizons tour this summer. Like I said, he's coming to 50 cities, so chances are there's a show that's near you. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes, or you can just check out briancoxlive.co.uk. 
This episode was produced by Kimmy Britt, edited by Bray Brown. I'm Joe Scott. You can find me at Answers with Joe pretty much everywhere on the socials. Of course, my YouTube channel is Answers with Joe. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Please do share this if you thought this was interesting. And a nice review on whatever podcast player you're using right now really does go a long way. But until next time, thanks. Have a good one. Now go out there and start some conversations of your own. Take care.